With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, good morning, Cornwall Church. It is great to have you here, wherever here is, whether you're here in Bellingham or watching on the big screen in Skagit or at a church in Boca, Belize, or Auburn, Washington. It is great to have you uh, with us as we continue in this series called Unified. You know, this week as I was preparing for this morning, I was thinking about a Sunday in August 2007. It was a morning that I would preach my first sermon at Foundry Church in Bend, Oregon. Now, the road to that Sunday morning sermon was a bit of a long one. I'm grateful to have been mentored by our then senior pastor, Sid Brestel, who took time with me, months and months of intense study, as we would do book studies, we'd learn about the chronology, the origin of the Bible, we examined the characteristics of God, the history of the church, I had lessons in interpretation of the Bible, how to identify themes, how to put together a sermon, and to stay on time. It was a really, really good time to learn how to do this. He's not here. It's okay. And as Pastor Bob mentioned last week, this is a moment where we take what we've learned and put it into practice. It's kind of like that first Sunday in August of 2007, when after months of learning, I took the stage for the first time. It's like Paul saying, enough talk, it's time for some action. And so with that in mind, we look at the first verse of Ephesians 4. It says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now here again, Paul references his status, his condition as a prisoner. Now it is true, as Paul would write this letter, he was a prisoner in Rome under the control, the rule of Nero. But notice, Paul doesn't describe himself as a prisoner of Nero or a prisoner in Rome. Those terrible circumstances of being unfairly placed in prison did not define his ministry. Instead, he boldly describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. In fact, the word prisoner here defines or is describing a person who is bound or linked to or captive of someone else. 
Paul here was not bound by Nero. He was bound to the Lord. His identity, his character were linked to Christ. In fact, just one chapter before, Paul will affirm this. Chapter 3, verse 1, he will say, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake, so on and so forth. So a first reading of this verse, this greeting, might seem negative, but it is anything but, because Paul knows to whom he belongs. His location, his current status, are second to his loyalty and his association with Christ. So following this reminder, he makes a very big request. He says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, live a worthy life. That's something you might hear at the end of a graduation speech. Live a worthy life. It's a directive all about the individual and their accomplishments. What can you do? How much can you attain? How will you be successful? What difference will you make? How will history remember you? Do you hear the commonality? You, 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 and you. Because in that scenario, the only one that matters is you. And that's what happens when we measure ourselves up against living a worthy life. And when we do that, we open ourselves up to disappointment and comparison and unmet expectations and criticism. And so instead, Paul encourages us to live a life worthy of a calling, to live our lives to honor God with his free, undeserved gift of grace given to those who choose to follow after him. And as we choose to follow after Christ, by our proximity and our heart change for him, we should want to live like him. He would offer a similar message to the Philippians. Paul would say, whatever happens, conduct yourselves or live in a way, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To the Thessalonians, he would write, we keep on praying for you, asking God to enable you to live a life worthy of the call. Multiple audiences with one message. And Paul is clearly emphatic about this. He says, I urge you. Notice how the word would change the tone of the text if he said, I'd like you to. Or if it works out for you. Or if it's convenient, I'd love it if. But instead he says, I urge you. He's indicating his seriousness, his passion. The NLT will say, I beg you. The NASB will say, I implore you. The King James Version will say, I beseech you. Now that one, if I had a nickel for every time I used the word beseech in my life, I would have zero nickels. But here Paul is beseeching them. He's beseeching them to live a life worthy of their calling. And here's what's great. Paul does not leave it to us to guess. He tells us exactly how to do it. He continues in verse 2. He says, do this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you're keeping track, he is beseeching them to be humble, to be patient, to bear with one another and do their best to keep unity through peace. And by all of us doing this, the product will be naturally the first characteristic of a healthy church, 
live differently. We will live differently. All of us doing this. You see, the world will tell you, take what is yours and then tweet about it, post it on Facebook or Instagram it. And Paul says, nah, don't, don't do that. Just be humble and kind. The world says fast is no longer fast enough. At fast food restaurants, you now can order your food on an app, making your fast food restaurant even faster. The world says, get yours quick and get going. And Paul says the opposite, slow down. Let patience drive you. In fact, go from the fast lane, merge to the slow lane. Enjoy the ride. The world says if someone's bugging you, well, say something to them or spread something about them or passive aggressive them until something happens. And Paul says, even as children of God, we will disagree, but stick it out, work through it. Seek reconciliation, bear with one another, even when or especially when it's tough to do. The world will say, if you're not with me, you're against me. And Paul would say, it's evident you're not with me. Can we talk about that? Can you hear how these simple motive and action changes change the conversation? Can you believe how living differently might just cause someone to do a double take? And can you understand how humbly being patient, bearing with one another in a way that we get to live worthy of our calling means we live differently? And doesn't that sound a lot like the guy we're following? Jesus doesn't ask you to do something he hasn't done. He was patient, he was humble, he was kind, he bore with others. So first we must choose to live differently. But then Paul continues, he says this, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called with one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Paul here mentioning one six times. One body, that's us, with one spirit together, believing in one hope, Jesus and our one Lord. Paul taking a page from a previous chapter and doing some quick theology. He continues, he says, there's one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It can't be more complete than that. He's over all, he's through all, and he's in all. God is all encompassing. And there is no one more complete, no one with a greater reach or purview, and no one more intricately involved than the God of the universe. And because this is true, this magnitude should overwhelm you and it helps reinforce the request in the first verse to live worthy of the calling you've received. Paul goes on in verse 11. He says this, Christ himself then gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What a run on. But do you see the power in this verse, this passage? First, we the church have to say, we're going to live differently. And then we say, we will choose to be equipped for ministry. We're choosing to be equipped for ministry. Now this 
fair warning is going to fall on the pastors just a bit, but don't get comfortable. It's true. Christ provides the church with teachers and leaders. What began with the apostles doing as Jesus taught them continues today. Pastor Bob has many, many responsibilities at Cornwall Church, but he would tell you his number one priority is to equip you and I. Last year, I remember saying goodbye to someone at our Skagit campus and thanking them for coming that day. And he turned to me and he said, I would never miss a Sunday. It's how I get fed for the week so I don't go hungry. You see, a good pastor is like a great head coach. They tell you the why and the what and the who, but most importantly, they tell you the how. They equip you with the knowledge and the doable actions that you can make it through the week, through the game, until the next week when you do it all over again. And I might be biased, but I believe that equipping happens here at Cornwall Church. Pastor Michael and Shauna at our Skagit campus do an incredible job of equipping your children. Pastor Mike equips those that answer the call to go and be. Pastor Bill equips those that say, yes, I'll lead a small group. Pastor Scott and our student ministry team equip your middle school students, your high school students, and our young adults. And Pastor Bob and occasionally Pastor Kip and I have the privilege of equipping you from this platform for the week ahead with solid, applicable, relatable, biblical truth so you can get down the field one more yard. It's important, but this is about me. This is about you, the individual. And Paul is saying, equipping is not just for me. It is for we. Remember I told you, you can't get too comfortable. Here's where you come in. He says, I'm going to send you pastors and teachers and people that are going to help inspire you, but here's where you come in. It's so that... He says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. Paul has this amazing way of weaving in the theme of unity throughout his letter. For example, the book of James, as we looked at last year, a practical how-to guide for Christian living and speaks very much to the individual Christ follower, which is great. Like James, Paul speaks to the individual Christ follower, but then ups the ante and shows how individual Christ followers and their actions can create unity in the body and in the church. It's why being here on the weekend is vital. It's the only 75 minutes we get to be together, to be built up together. In other words, to be equipped, you've got to show up. You've got to be here. But more than just being present, it means you must be ready to be fueled up. Earlier this spring, I went to the Orange Conference with our children's ministry and our student ministry. It was my first time at the Orange Conference in Atlanta. I had heard great things about it. And I remember the first morning on a hot Atlanta morning, walking into the event center, and I looked to my left and looked to my right, and people are walking in with notebooks and binders and laptops and tablets. And I turn to my wife, Shauna, and say, I am in trouble. And she says, why? 
I said, I don't have anything to take notes with. She goes, it won't be a big deal. I walk into the, the main auditorium, the stadium there, and as they're getting ready and the countdown's going on, everyone's pulling up, open their laptops and powering up their tablets, and I realize I've got to go out to the commons, and I spent too much money on a little tablet, little notebook, and a pen so that I could be better equipped. I knew I was going to get great teaching on how to do student ministry better, children's ministry better, but I wasn't prepared to be equipped then. So it's part showing up. It's also part being ready to be equipped so that, so that we can all be build, built up and geared up and coached up together for another week. And then we see Paul continue. He says this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. In other words, once we've decided to live differently and we've committed to be equipped by pastors and teachers in our church, then we must embrace maturity. We've got to embrace maturity. Now, some of you are nudging the person you came with, but it's a different kind of maturity we're talking about. We're talking about a spiritual maturity. A product of our maturity, our advanced in being equipped, is discernment. Quite simply, it's your being able to know that doesn't sound right. Something's off about that. You see, maturity changes everything. As we mature in our faith, no longer are we like dependent infants or flippantly tossed by the ocean or swung to and fro by the wind. Paul makes the case that it's best when we mature together, collectively, that we can stand firm in our faith then together. And he says this, he says, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him, the mature body, all of us, who is the head that is Christ. We are the body of Christ, Christ is the head. So then we are called to grow individually, yes, we are called to grow collectively as well. It is widely believed that Paul is the author of Hebrews. He would make this same case in this way. Paul saying, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward. We will mature to further understanding. You can almost hear his sarcasm. We don't need this over and over. Let's dive deeper. Now, is he discounting elementary or basic teaching? Absolutely not. He is suggesting that a maturing Christian sitting in this auditorium would not benefit the same from sitting in Explorers Hall, in Explorers League, in children's ministry. As a kid, you heard about Jonah swallowed by the big fish. As an adult, you learned more the deeper elements of the story. 
God's sovereignty and disobedience. As a kid, you were taught that Jesus died and rose again because he loved you. True story. As an adult, you were taught the implications, the history behind, the motive, the why, the how. One is not right or more right than the other. It's simply a matter of maturity and understanding, not age and understanding. And that's why it's an even playing field. We're, we're all maturing together, collectively. Because embracing maturity is not always easy. We need to do this as one. And yeah, sometimes it's easier not to go into maturity, to show up, to sing the songs, to pass the offering basket, to mindlessly fill in the blanks and then go home. But you know, and Paul knows that we know, that that is not the calling for Christ. Ask any middle school parent, maturity takes work. Maturity requires our effort. Paul is urging us to intentionally embrace maturity so that we can encourage one another and dig deeper and ask the tough questions and process through the tough answers to ultimately seek understanding as a unified body of Christ. And the result, he tells us. He says this, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So after we commit to living differently, committing to being equipped, embracing and pursuing maturity, the last characteristic of a healthy church is simply operate in unity. Operate in unity. That's when we all come together. We operate as if we truly believed Ephesians 4.16, that figuratively and literally and metaphorically and spiritually we are one, that somehow we are all joined connected together, that there are unseen ligaments connecting and holding us together, and that we are actively building each other up. And we know that unity was not this flippant idea that Paul threw around. He firmly believed it was the DNA of a healthy church, that we are not meant to do this faith journey as a solo trek. It's why he would tell the Thessalonians, to encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Not a suggestion, not a recommendation, but an assumption. He says, as in fact you are doing, present, active tense. I, I can't see you, but I know you're doing this. To the Corinthians, Paul would write, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you would agree with one another in what you say, let there be no divisions among you, but that you are perfectly united in mind and thought. Remember earlier I referenced uh, Philippians 1.27, Paul encouraging the church at Philippi to live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, that verse doesn't end there. He adds here another friendly mic drop preposition. He says, then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for a faith in the gospel. Unity is the call for the church. Author and pastor Matt Chandler would say this about unity. When the people in a church dwell together 
in the unity of the gospel and together pursue the building up of one another in love, they are providing fertile soil for the roots of deep joy. As Matt describes it, unity requires us to dwell, pursue, and build up one another. And that requires us, then, to be proximate, to be close together, and to be intentional with our time together. Our small group in Skagit will put this to the test this week. We had a plan to go to the Skagit County Fair together as a small group. And at last count, there are 26 of us going to the Skagit County Fair together. So we'll be bouncing between the 4-H barn, the cotton candy booth, and the tilt-a-whirl. It's going to be great. 26 kids and adults at the fair. Now, sure, we all could have gone as seven individual families, but our small group is committed to being proximate, close, and intentional together in unity. So all 26 of us, we're all in. It's going to be good, or it won't. <laughs> There's going to be memories and meltdowns. It's going to be okay but we're unified in this idea. Francis Chan said this. He said, I don't believe God wants our church life to be centered on buildings and services. Uh Uh-oh. Instead, God wants our churches to be focused on active discipleship and mission and the pursuit of unity. What matters, right? Discipleship, mission, and the pursuit of unity. It is too easy for us to get high-centered on what we perceive as an issue in the church. In fact, do this exercise for me. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think about an issue you've had with the church? It takes two seconds to think, what's the first thing that flashes across your mind? Now consider, consider if a satisfactory resolution to that issue was done, would that help in making disciples? Would it help you be more on mission? And would it help the church be more unified? And if the answer is no, then I would respectfully recommend you pray about it and let it go. Because when division wins, the church loses. When division wins, the church loses. The reality is we are fallen sinners. And so when we have a small issue, it festers. And after it festers, it grows and it becomes something we can't not see happening in our church. And eventually it takes over our heart and mind and it distracts us from the reason we come to church in the first place. And the result is one of two things. One, we tell someone else about our growing discontentment. Or two, we leave the church. And either one hurts the church, the local church here at home and the big C church. It fuels also the skepticism of not yet Christians watching us, asking, is that really how the church acts? Or saying, and that's why I don't go to church. I I vividly remember a friend of mine describing why he had no interest in God or church. He said, why would I be part of a place where people say one thing one minute and complain and gossip and check out when they leave the building. His assessment of the church haunts me to this day, and yet I still wonder, is he right? 
So if you have an issue, discern if it's worth addressing. And then through your pursuit of maturity, deal with it. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with one another, forgive one another, because you have been forgiven by God. The Lord has forgiven you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which what? Binds us together in a perfect unity. This is how we battle division in the church. Is it easier said than done? Absolutely. Does it take courage to do this? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Without a doubt. Because when unity wins, the church shines. That's not a fill-in, but man, it should have been. (laughs) When unity wins, the church shines. And it doesn't shine because of us. And it doesn't shine for the benefit of Cornwall Church or Pastor Bob. It's not so we can say how great we are, but we get to live differently and live in the reality that we are good because God is great. I love Psalm 133, 1. It says this, how good, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when we live together in unity. Just last week, I was at our Skagit campus greeting people in the parking lot, as Pastor Bob does here, and I saw Donna Holmes get out of her car. Now, Donna was a former elder here at Cornwall Church, and she and her husband Bob attend Bellingham. And I remember as she approached me, before I could even do a greeting, she, with a big smile, says, our whole small group is coming to Skagit today. And then, car by car, couple by couple, they came into the building, And it was noticeable, such a small, simple act that mattered. It communicated unity. And when people would ask me about the big group of visitors, I loved telling them who they were. I loved saying, they're not visitors, they're part of our church family. Another example, here in Bellingham, you have offered a class called Starting Point, four times now. A multi-week class that provides a safe, non-threatening platform to explore one's faith, where opinions and beliefs are valued and no question is off limits. The spiritual landscape has been altered because of these classes, countless stories of life change through these gatherings. And so when Jeff Childs, who attends Bellingham and leads this ministry, learned that Skagit did not yet have a starting point class, he wrote me an email. It said, I talked to Pastor Jeff, yes, all in caps. Let's work on a start date for starting point in Skagit. I am all in. Make no mistake, we are one church in two locations. Donna and her small group and Jeff living out Ephesians 4.3 to make every effort to keep unity and Ephesians 4.16 that everyone does their part. You see, to be a healthy church, we must be healthy Christ followers. A healthy church is a product of healthy Christ followers. Paul's order was right. Transformation begins with you and I. Being humble and kind and patient and bearing with one another. But unity is the responsibility of the church. And a unified church is what God designed. And I can think of no better application for you than small groups. Now hear me out, this is not an infomercial for small groups paid for by Bill Gillifillan. This is the truth. 
Before you hit the big leagues, you have to get practice in the minors. This is where you get to figure things out and be right and be wrong and ask the questions, even the ones you're afraid to ask, and to get practice until what you're doing becomes second nature. Well, guys, that's the definition of small groups, where you get to figure things out and be right and be wrong and ask questions, even the questions you're afraid of asking, and get practice until what you're doing becomes second nature. You see, in small groups, you can share honestly about your success and your failed attempts in your pursuit of living differently and pursuing maturity and living in community for others than just yourself. I love my small group in Skagit because there, I'm not Pastor Brian. I'm just Brian, sinner, child of God, working it out, working out his faith, figuring things out, mingle in a carefree in a, in a judgment-free environment. It's in small groups you get to work things out with people that have your back. And the result of in small groups getting stronger and more unified, well, the church gets stronger and more unified. Just consider what we might be able to do together when everyone's serving in their passion, sharing in their gifting, bearing one another's burdens, living transparently, free of guilt, and judgment. So if you're in a small group already, awesome. Maybe you've been hanging on to the edge of the pool in the shallow end. Would you consider diving deep in the fall? And if you're not in a small group, do I have a deal for you today? One weekend only, it's free to join a small group. Let me show you something. This is Pastor Bill. This handsome man leads our small groups here in Bellingham. This guy, I'm not quite sure about, but this guy here in Bellingham would love nothing more than to connect you into a small group here in Bellingham and the surrounding areas. It's what he does. It's his passion. Finding you a place to belong and to ask those questions. If you're in Skagit, talk to this guy. Here's the thing. Small groups are the lifeblood of what's going on here at Cornwall Church. So if you're not in a small group, pray about, is this fall the time to jump in? And if it is not a small group, for whatever reason, then would you look at one of those four boxes and see if one of those could be a first step for you? And not because I'm asking you, not because it involves the church, we can find the why in the first verse of the passage. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. Insert your name and make it more personal. I urge, insert your name. And here's what I need you to do. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And the calling on your life is to live is compelling and it's critical and it is personal. And so if that is the why, the question is simply, how will you answer? That's the call for the church, and that's the call for you and I.